It's cross defense time Mondays, Monday, 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 2 p.m. Central Time in the St. Louis area. I hope you're tuning to 8.50 a.m. on your radio dial. If not, I hope you're pulling that device out of your pocket and pulling up your favorite podcast app, listening to this whenever you're vacuuming or driving, wherever you're going, putting those AirPods in and just listening to this voice right here. If you're hearing this voice, you're in the right place. It's cross defense at KFUO.org. Today we have a great show. It's really the first show in a new format. We're going to be breaking up the show. We already we already do break it up into three segments, but today we're going to actually make those segments align with the tagline of this show. And if you have been listening for a little while, you know the tagline is, this is the show where we aim to equip the mind, excite the imagination, and comfort the soul, all with God's word because we have a fierce foe and there is only one defense cross christ on the cross the cross yes the cross of christ is our defense so those three parts of the show equipping the mind guiding the imagination and comforting the soul they're going to drive this thing from now on so we have a few guests lined up for you in this first segment we're going to look at equipping the mind and we're going to talk to reverend dr adam kuntz he is assistant professor of exegetical study here at Concordia Theological Seminary, where I have the joy of being an admission counselor. Uh, you've heard him on the show before, and you've probably seen him all over the interwebs. The man is making the rounds, and uh, we're all getting used to his smile. If you're, uh, well, you can't see him right now, but you know he's smiling. You know this is a, this is a joyful man uh, who is serving in the Lord. Adam, how are you today? Doing great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking time out of your uh, your busy day to join us. We would like you to help us equip our minds in God's word. Uh, and I was hoping you could do something for us that you could just kind of give us a little bit of what you're giving your students in the classroom. So what do you yeah. got for us today? Yeah, we're looking at a text, uh, Matthew 25, 31 to 46. It probably has a header in your English Bible, like the parable of the sheep and the goats or something like that, um, just before it, just before that chunk of verses. And it's one that we've recently looked at in the introductory course that we do here in New Testament, um, which is Gospels 1, which is really just the Gospel of Matthew. It's also one that many folks listening to this are going to be hearing in one of the next several weeks because it comes up at the end of the church year. Uh -huh. um, as the church year winds down uh, in November, uh, we always begin to look at the end times and the judgment. Whatever you know, lectionary your pastor is using, you're going to get there somehow. So I figured it would be a good one to look at today. It's a great one. Yeah, actually, absolutely. So take us into it. So what you have is a climactic picture. Uh, you could call it a parable or not. It's definitely a picture of how things will be in the judgment. But um, it's not a literal sense because, you know, the people who are actually people are called sheep and goats here. And that's, you know, not literally, I'm not going to turn into a sheep and God forbid I should turn into a goat literally. Uh, but uh, <laughs> what, what, what you're getting is, is a picture of what judgment day will look like. And you've got to use your imagination, which is part of this you, show, right? Exciting imagination. To, to read the Bible. Well, you have to use your imagination. You know, that's I right. think, see, I agree with CS Lewis on that. So I think you, uh, when, what you're seeing is, the son of man, and that's the way that Jesus talks about himself in the third person throughout the gospel, uh, especially in connection with someone who has suffered on the cross. So the person that is doing the judging in this picture is Jesus Christ, 
who suffered and died and rose on the third day, specifically that one. So this is after Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection. Then someday in the future, coming like a thief in the night is his judgment day. So we don't know when this will be. He's already pictured that to us earlier in this chapter, Matthew 25. And now, now we see what happens at the end. And I think I can only give you a little bit of a sense of this. Our students here have a little bit better sense because they've been studying Matthew since September. So they have a sense of how Jesus is building up these pictures of opposites that he's been doing. But just one throughout Matthew's gospel, one place you can go to just get a sense of this is at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the end of chapter seven in Matthew. And Jesus gives you a picture of two different trees. One's a good tree, one's a bad tree. And the way that you can tell what kind of a tree they are and whether or not they will survive is whether they bear good fruit or bad fruit. Same thing with at the also at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, this picture of two houses. One is built on the rock of Jesus's words. And when cataclysms and floods and the end comes, that house will be beaten and buffeted and rain will hammer down on it, but it will stand because it was built on the rock of Jesus's words, of his teachings, right? Which happen in five different big chunks in Matthew's gospel. And the sheep and the goats is at the very end of the very last of those five. The house that is not built on Jesus's teaching. So the person who builds his life on something other than God's infallible word, when the rains come and the floods come and everything falls apart, his house, his life, everything he's thought and built and done will fall down and be destroyed. So you have to keep all that in mind as you have a picture of two different groups because they come to they come before the son of man and he separates them. And this is something that in Jesus, when Jesus grew up, you know, he's a country boy. So a lot of his teaching is country type teaching. These are familiar images to people that he grew up with. So he is the, in Matthew. We do have the theme of the two different groups. Yep. You're going to okay. have two different groups. And the thing is right now, and this is the parable of the wheat and the weeds right now, before the end times, before the final day, I can't tell the difference a lot of the time. Uh-huh. I can't tell the difference. Jesus knows the difference and his angels are going to come down and separate the wheat and the weeds, Matthew 13. But right now I can't tell the difference and it's not my job. There we go. Okay. This is truly what Jesus means by do not judge. He doesn't mean have no moral discernment, be morally (laughs) stupid and reckless. Thanks for hitting that. Yeah. Yeah. What he means is when he says do not judge, he says, don't take my job. It's not your job to separate the sheep from the goats. You don't know how to do that, but he does. So he's going to do something that lots of people would do. End of the day, the sheep and the goats go into different pens. And there are lots of, you know, you can go buy a big, probably overpriced Bible commentary and find this stuff out, but I'll just condense it for you. (laughs) Yes, thank Uh, you. Goats do things to sheep that a shepherd doesn't want. So he's going to put them in different pens at the end of the day. They can graze in the same place. But the goats are going to destroy the sheep, so he's going to put them in a different place at the end of the day. At the end of the day, he's going to separate them. On his right go the sheep. And this is something that if you've ever been to church and you've wondered, why doesn't the pastor use his left hand very much, even if he's left-handed, is because a lot of the gestures that you get in church are based on a theme you find throughout the Bible as well as in this story, that the right hand is the place of blessing. So when we talk about Jesus being at the Father's 
right hand, we would never say he's at the father's left hand. The Bible doesn't put anybody at his left Left hand. hand. But in this story, the blessed go to the right and the wicked go to the left. The Latin word for left is sinister for this reason. Long tradition of these things. I don't know if you're left-handed or if the listeners are left-handed. I'm not going to tell you now. Like, I'm just not. Right, exactly. (laughs) Right. But all I can tell you, it's I'm just repeating the Bible. Okay. So, you know, um, and so they're going to go off to what some to the right, some to the left, goats to the left, sheep to the right. What you're going to get in most of this story is not just that picture. It's an explanation of what's going on here. And to fill it all in is a little hard because there's so much in Matthew that's leading into it. But there are two different components to what Jesus says to each group. To the sheep, he says, come, enter the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So you know right off the bat that the sheep are coming into a place that was made ready for them before they were even born. Mm. This goes into a teaching that you get in other places in the Bible, but especially in Romans 9 and Ephesians 1, and that is election, God's choice of his people. And his choice of his people is solely because of his love for us, not because of anything that we did. It's a beautiful teaching. And he gives it to the blessed as they come into his kingdom. They are reminded that all of this was set up for them out of his love, out of his grace, from before the foundation of the world. So not just before they were born or before their great, 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 great grandparents were born, before anything happened, he prepared a kingdom for them. So what do we, when we are dealing with this text, I often hear people talk about it in terms of social justice, right? Oh my goodness. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so let's, let's hit that nail real quick. And uh, yeah. before we run out of time, but let's well, make sure yeah, we talk because, about that. No, that's really good because a lot of people see it as, Oh, um, th- this means that if you do enough, especially for poor people or people in prison or the sick, then you get into heaven. Right. And the misunderstanding there is that, uh, when the blessed are told that they did all of these wonderful things, they clothed the naked, they, they fed the hungry, they tended to the sick, all of that. When they're told that, they, as you're supposed to be, according to the Sermon on the Mount, do not, know, do not let one hand know what the other hand is doing. They aren't even aware of all of the wonderful things that they've done. Because the life of God's people is not a life of thinking about how impressive I am to myself. And Jesus says, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. He doesn't mean there people who simply, no matter what they believe, are sick or poor or in prison. What he means specifically by brothers, you have to go to Matthew 10 to understand this. His brothers are those whom he has sent out with his gospel. So the blessed are the people who have received his gospel. And because they received his gospel, they have done these really good things. They have borne good fruit. But it's because they were a good tree to begin with planted by the gospel. So it's the blessed are those who receive his teaching, his kingdom, his commandments, and then they build their life on those things, just like that picture at the end of Matthew 7. The wicked are those who didn't receive his gospel truly. They know his name, but plenty of people do. They know his name, but they don't do it to the least of he these his brothers. So Jesus doesn't say, look, you didn't build enough hospitals. You didn't have enough social programs. He says you didn't receive the gospel. And so you didn't bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Huge That's, distinction. 
huge, huge, absolutely enormous distinction because you have to think about it. If Jesus actually just thought that, you know, helping the poor was the only thing you needed to do, why didn't he do more of it? Or why didn't he heal everybody in Galilee or everybody in Judea? It's because it's not the point. The point is his teaching and his death and resurrection and accepting that message. And that's the basis for judgment. Before that, you were telling us about election and the beauty of that that mm-hmm. doctrine and how yeah. these things were prepared from before the foundation of the world. Can you yeah. tell us more on that more just to kind of get our minds geared up toward the end of this show? And we'll talk about the comfort of souls, uh, you know, right. how our souls are comforted by the gospel, but just take us more into that comfort of that. doctrine. Yeah, because, it's a because tricky that, that doc, it is, it is. And it's tricky because people want more information than the Bible is going to give. The information that the Bible gives is simply this, that, If I am saved, if I am among the sheep, among the blessed, it is solely due to God's grace and Christ's merit, Christ's work, right? That is the gospel. If I am damned, if I am among the goats and I depart to the left hand uh, and I enter into a fire, not prepared for any human soul, but only for the devil, right? So the kingdom is prepared for the blessed, but the fire of hell was only prepared for the devil and his angels. And humans go there solely due to their own work. So if I get into heaven, it's because I believe in Jesus' work. If I get into hell, it's because I believe in my own work. And it it really is that simple. My goodness. This has been, this is a joy to be able to sit at the feet of a professor here at the seminary and hear this kind of stuff. I'm not sure our people out there in in our churches and our pews are hearing this kind of end. I mean, we've only been at it 13 minutes. And yeah. look at this. Yeah. I mean, look yeah. at the, the the coverage we've got here. What we what we talked about. Uh, what else are you getting? Are are you giving to the seminarians? What else can we mine out of this in about yeah. four minutes? Yeah, I think I think another thing to pay attention to are the attitudes of the blessed versus the damned, ah, because okay. the, the sheep's attitude is that, wow, I didn't know this was coming. This is so amazing. I didn't know I was doing anything all that impressive. And is that right? not to interrupt you, but to interrupt yeah. you, is that just a coincidence or is there some no. connection to what you had told us a minute ago about you can't you and me humans can't see who the sheep are, who the goats are. It's very much, it's very much connected because it's connected to this unconsciousness and lack of interest in how human beings evaluate my life that you're actually taught in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not here on earth to impress myself or other people. That's not why I should do good works. I do them because God has commanded them. Uh, And therefore, my attitude to my own good works is not an attitude of being impressed with myself. Look at the attitude, however, of the damned, of the goats. Their attitude is, Jesus says, you know, you know, you depart into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And they are incredulous. (laughs) And they stand there and they list off, look at all the good stuff we did. You're supposed to be impressed with us. The damned are very much like the Pharisees who were Jesus's enemies as far back as the Sermon on the Mount, chapters five through seven, because the damned, like the Pharisees, do things to be seen. They do things so that people can be impressed with them. And that makes them very impressed with themselves. And so those those attitudes are also characteristic, respectively, with the sheep, characteristic of belief, of faith, 
and with the goats, characteristic of unbelief or distrust in the Lord. Could you say that the, the goats are like, well, look at the law. Look how well we kept the law while the sheep are like, oh, the gospel covers us, covers us there yeah. too? Yeah, well, and, and, and the irony of focusing on the gospel is that it actually enables you to fulfill the law in a way that a person who focuses <laughs> on the law never does because he's obsessed with himself instead of his neighbor. <laughs> Amen. Oh my. Oh my goodness. We're out of time, brother. It's already. It's already that time. Oh man. Here we, yeah. <laughs> we'll have you back on soon. Uh, yeah, thank you so much, Doctor Coons, yeah. for uh, taking us into Matthew twenty-five. For the listeners out there, we're looking at twenty-five thirty-one to forty-six. The uh, separation of sheep in, from the goats. The final judgment. Uh, however, your your Bible labels it. Um, thank you so much, Doctor Coons, for your time. Yep. My and pleasure. Thank we'll, you. We'll talk to you again soon. We'll be back just after this. You're listening to Cross Defense. Don't go away. Ecclesiastes 10 verse 10 states, If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Find this true wisdom in Christ on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on Worldwide KFUO. Sharpen the iron of your faith together with two pastors as they take up the sword of the Spirit to proclaim the gifts of Christ crucified and risen for you. We're back from that break. I'm glad you're with us. Now, in this second segment of the show, as I told you before, this is the first episode of sort of a new breakdown. In the first segment, you heard Dr. Kuntz as he was equipping our mind at look, in that look at Matthew. Uh, and in the, uh, the segment following this, we're going to comfort the soul as that's another part of our tagline. In the second segment, we get to excite the imagination. And we're about to do that with our guest, who is also a familiar voice. You've heard him on the show before, the Reverend Sam Schulteis, pastor of Beautiful Savior Lutheran Church in Milton, Washington. Sam, how are you today? Oh, doing great. How about yourself? I'm wonderful. I'm even better now knowing that you're going to help us excite our imagination. Oh, um, fun. Looking forward to it. So let's let's just kind of dive into this thing because I only get you for about you know a little bit more than 15 minutes per guest now with my new format. So right. how are we going to excite our imagination today? What are we going to talk yeah, about? Yeah, good question. So I think last time we talked about uh, – we just kind of covered a whole – a whole gambit, you know, ran a whole gauntlet of different, uh, you know, imagination uh, topics and themes and things related to that. So I think in our correspondence kind of leading up to this, one of the things we talked about was, you know, a good place to start is uh, with some kind of basic definitions and yeah. Yeah, try to unpack those a little bit and look at those, right? Uh, it's the Julie Andrews, uh, you know, sort of uh, lesson, right? Start at the very beginning. Right? It's a very good place to start. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well said. Well said. So, Raimi, right. So, uh, yeah, that's that was my thought and uh yeah kind of prepared a few kind of jotted down a few notes uh was searching imagining in my head how ah. the conversation would go uh using those trying to use those brain powers uh and gifts there to think about that this morning here so Excellent. yeah that, i think that's a good place to start awesome let's do it give us some definitions let's talk definitions yeah. So one of the other things we, we encountered or discussed last time, and if people listened to it or did not, um, this is just kind of a – this will be a little review. But we talked about uh, – I used the definition that, uh, that I got from C.S. Lewis, right? and he talked about the imagination being the organ of meaning. 
And uh, I want to also compare that to or kind of uh, also make that distinction then from, you know, if if imagination is the organ of meaning, right, the, the part of our the part of our mind, of our God given gift and ability of the imagination to right, to interpret, to convey, to form pictures in our head and all those things that it does. Uh, Lewis also talks about I think it's in the same essay and I forget the exact name and citation of that, but we can figure that out later um, and, and maybe put it in a put it in a link or something like that if sure, you want sure. to. Um, he called reason right so the, kind of the other part of our mind and our brain and our 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 mental faculties right our reason is the organ of truth uh-huh. and uh, I, I thought those two kind of those two pillars really work well together um, because you have to have both you know truth and imagination right or you know to kind of use a biblical parallel it's not one for one but you know Paul talks about truth and love right uh-huh. and again different kind of direction but I think when we talk about the imagination right truth and and uh, meaning right, also go together. And in order to have truth, in order to discuss truth, um, just like with anything else, you have to have the imagination kind of behind it. Um, not in a nefarious way, but almost like a puppet master, you know, sort of controlling and, and moving and tweaking and working those arms and parts of the other, you know, the other faculties of the mind, right? Because if you want to know if something is true or false, uh, good or bad, right, right or wrong, and so forth. The imagination is that gift of God, right? That organ of meaning that helps kind of discern or sort of sail or navigate through that, right? So, that was Lewis's definition. Um, I was digging up a few other because I, I have I have lots of books that talk about Christians and the imagination and the gift of the imagination. It, it's something we've talked about and something I'm we like. Telling you, that's about. why you're the expert, man. <laughs> it's, it's just a lot of. I don't know. I find it fascinating. I find it fun. Um, so Tolkien, another uh, you know friend of C.S. Lewis, another major part of shaping the imagination, not just of Christians, but of a whole fantasy world and genre. You know, um, he he talked about the imagination this way, and I thought this was a pretty cool, very simple, basic definition. And I'll kind of I'll add to it and give my own uh, twist on that a little bit too. So Tolkien said the imagination is the the mental power of image making. Right? And we talked about that last time too, uh, that you know when we talk about the imagination, we're talking about images, pictures. Uh, we're forming them in our mind, right? So, uh, kind of a, a quick, a quick non-academic definition that I would kind of run with is, you know, the imagination, especially as we're talking about you know, Christians using our imaginations, right? The imagination is, is our gift from God, right? It is a, it is one of many gifts, right? It's a gift from God. And it really is. It's the artist in your mind, right? Or it's the it's the playwright, right? Or it's the the literary uh, wordsmith, or it's the movie director. Any of those kind of artistic, creative images you want to use, that's it, right. It's the artist in your mind creating things, forming images, making pictures, interpreting things that you see in the world around you, inside. You sort of, uh, you know, it's a two way street, right? You're taking images in but you're also conveying them and putting them out too. Um, you're also communicating them, right, in speaking. Uh, we talk this way, right? We use metaphors, similes, and so forth. Um, so that, that's kind of my shorthand definition is, you know, the imagination is God's gift, and uh, it is the artist inside your mind that, that makes pictures, right, that creates, um, that uh, that makes images, right? And uh, you know, it, it, it all starts with that gift of God. God's gift, the artist inside your mind. And, mm-hmm. and so the individual, I'm trying to, I'm tracking with this now. So the individual who's more inclined to, to be uh, imaginative with uh, music. Sure. The artist yeah. in, in his or her mind is a musician. Yeah. Or a composer, right. Compose, or, a, okay. a con- or a great conductor or, you know, there, there's probably other, there may be better musical metaphors or images or, you know, illustrations to use, but that's kind of the, 
that's sort of what comes to mind, right? So then when we think like liberal arts, right? We think yeah. college and, and the academy and training, and we think of that, that term liberal arts, mm -hmm. the, the arts of the free, the free person, the free man. And we're thinking of art and we're thinking of the, not art, like always at an easel. Like that's the general definition, like, you know, a coloring book, but, right. but the art so of yeah. things, right? And so we have that mm -hmm. artist within us. Mm -hmm. whatever the, the area, like we talked last time, we, I brought up math, which I don't know why yeah. I did that because I'm, not, <laughs> uh, I'm the last guy to do that. But um, yeah. So the artist within the mathematician's mind is a mathematician. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, it's the, the Stephen Hawking in your brain kind of thing, right? Okay, or or okay. whoever, you know, whoever you might put in that position. Uh, sometimes people, you know, when, when, like when you read a book, right, you kind of you tend to read it in the voice of the author if you know the author or if you've heard them speak or you might have this own sort of internal voice. Um, you know, like when I when I read C.S. Lewis, to use him again as a good example, uh, because I've listened to a few of his radio interviews and things, I, I hear it in my head with with Lewis reading in his, you know, British accent uh, and, and same with Tolkien uh, and. Um, you know, if I read Harry Potter, a newer uh, but wonderful imaginative book series, I hear it actually in the voice of Jim Dale because he does a great uh, little audio, uh, more like an audio performance than an audio reading of the, the Harry Potter books. So I, even if I'm reading it, I'm hearing it in the voice that I've listened to from his from his audio performances. Wow. And I think in a similar way, we kind of do that with other things, right? We have this again, this artist uh, or a composer or architect or musician or whatever it may be in our head uh in it's part of our being right it's not somebody else it's it's part of us it's part of you um the the imagine the imaginer right but it's it's a gift of god and and it, yeah it, it's going to be different for each person just like just like your personality is right. different just you know like all of those things are unique to each of us and yet at the same time there's some similarities right like that's how god created us i mean the definition of imagination really goes back to genesis 1 and 2 right god creating us in the image, uh, in his own image and likeness, right. and uh, that's that's a really, I think, a marvelous thing. We kind of see that throughout right, throughout scriptures too. So, ha, good stuff. Ah, oh, my goodness. Uh, leave it to Tolkien and Lewis to kind of, you know, of course we went there. We had to go there. Yeah, you got it. They they really, I mean, they they shaped so many things in in literature and in, in you know, storytelling and just the, the the thought and the you know, the not theory but the. You know, or the philosophy behind what what were they doing? Right? What were they creating? What were they attempting to you know to do and write in their writing? You know, and it wasn't just accidental. It was very very intentional in a lot of ways, and the imagination was really a kind of a center of that. Right? Do you think this might be a little off topic? And I, and anytime we want to move back, we can. But just sure, sure. Do you think that our unbelieving counterparts in the world today realize how much their own imagination? Is built on the the you know, sits on the shoulders of the greats like Lewis yeah. and Tolkien, even in modern history, right? These are modern sure. guys um, that are Christian, because you know the 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 unbelieving world seems to be hostile toward Christianity, but much right. of the way they even imagine, the way that you know the way Hollywood creates and the way um, you know New York Times best-selling authors are writing, much of it, mm -hmm. even if it's not in the same genres as the as the Inklings. It's been informed and shaped by their right. musings on this topic, for sure. I mean, you look at you look at movies, comic books, stories, right? Anything that's anything that's written uh, with a with a story of some kind in mind, you're going to have a ton of different themes at at kind of at the center of it, right? Right. Uh, at the heart of it, you know. 
I mean, a classic example I like to think of is, you know, like any, well, any decent war movie, right? Like Saving Private Ryan or something like that is going to have at its heart the sacrifice, right? Uh, right. Some kind of some kind of selfless giving of one's life for the benefit of, of another, right? And that's not just war movies, but a lot of movies and comic books and, again, stories in general have that have that key element to it. And uh, I think that one of our own Lutheran um, uh, pastors and theologians, a guy named Francis Rosso, uh, mm-hmm. oh, a few a number of years ago, wrote a book called uh, Gospel Patterns in Literature. Yes. And he made, he made the point in that book, which is an excellent book, um, and really easy and kind of user-friendly thing to read. Yeah. Um, he made the point that in the beginning of the book that you know, the reason we see a lot of these these images of the gospel, sometimes they're intentional. He kind of grouped them into categories. So you had the intentional ones, you had sort of the unintentional, and you had the ones that were not intentional whatsoever, but they were still there, you know, where to the point of where even atheists sometimes, the un, complete unbelievers, will do this almost un, unwittingly uh, right. or unknowingly or unintentionally. Um, and he... He made the point, and I think this is—I think this is right—that um, the reason we see a lot of that, or that we find a lot of that in, you know, across the artistic genres, you know, music, literature, arts, and so forth, right? Just the arts is because the death and resurrection of Christ right, is the center of. Obviously, it's the center of Scripture. Right? It's the center of our Christian life. But it's also the center of all human history. Right? The entire, the entire thing, yeah. including music, literature, culture, the arts, everything. Right? And so it's not a surprise that we find you know this popping up. Uh, you know in in pagan poets, you have dying and rising gods and goddesses and things before Christ. Well, why? Because it's kind of ri- it's written in God's word, and the creation, although broken and fallen and completely warped and misunderstands this, there's still a little bit of a, a little bit of a broken piece there that reflects that. Yeah, right? it always um, helps me to understand this when I think of the devil as the author of the lie, right? Like his language is mm-hmm. lying. He, yep. I think we give him too much credit because we oftentimes by default think he can create things. Right. right? No. That he's able yeah. to tell a story. He cannot tell a story. He can only no. distort the story that's already been told. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So, he can only twist and, and yeah. you know, corrupt and warp. And, you know, think uh, for a classic example of that, look at uh, the movie Snow White or uh, especially like Sleeping Beauty, right? There's all these beautiful, you know, plants and vegetations and things around the castle. And when Maleficent comes and destroys the place, it, it's not as if she created something new. She, all the thorns and thistles and things warp and, you know, are, they're, they're, they're corrupted, right? They're tainted. They're, they're warped by sin, we would say. Yep. And, yep. and so there's, there's a reason. So I, I think, Rosso is onto the kind of onto the meat of it there that you know at the center of human history and the mind and the imagination and all of those things too, is the death and resurrection of Christ and that that just spills over right into all creation and so yeah I think sometimes yeah unbelievers do it unknowingly and uh, especially when it comes to reading Tolkien and things um, and Lewis and other Christian you know some of the great Christian writers throughout throughout history right you know Dante and others yeah. uh, people read those and there's there's a there's a there's a goodness to them, right? To use the the transcendentals, there's a beauty to them. There's a truth, uh, the truth, right? In in those things, and that's going to come out, um, kind of no matter what, right? I mean, that's why uh, even Peter Jackson, not a Christian, when he makes the movies of Lord of the Rings as he did several years ago, um, still had Christian themes in the movies because it's there in the literature beforehand, which is marvelous. Right? And if he's going to be faithful to the story, and we can debate that, of course, back and forth, right? right. <laughs> but for the most part, right, there's a there's at least a consistency and enough to where you can say, all right, yeah, he he kept intact some of those key, you know, we would say 
Christ-centered figures, moments, events, people, places, that kind of thing, you know, in the story. And, uh, you know, Lewis went on, had a great little point about this in one of his essays on writing stories that, um, you know, he, he often looked at it as, you know, telling a story is like, uh, you know, telling it, telling a biblical story, right, in a different way. Right? He wanted to take, kind of take people out of the pews and the stained glass windows and give them the same story, but through the imagination. And so he called it, or referred to it as, you know, sneaking around watchful dragons yeah. of, of unbelief. Right? That uh, you know, a good story, like like Lion Witch in the Wardrobe, or you know, The Hobbit, or something like that, um, can actually, you know, carry with it and be kind of imbibed and filled with. You know the, these themes of, of the scriptures of, of good news, of hope, of comfort, of sacrifice, redemption, right, rescue, salvation. Um, you know, sort of the happy ending. Right? And people will read this and hear this, and it will it will point them to something better, greater. The, it ends up almost being the stealth laying of a foundation for the, for the unbelieving culture, the pagan mm -hmm. culture. They they first get the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and, and they just recognize it as a story. And, and this is hard for I think for for especially lifelong Christians to realize. You know, we know the story of Jesus so well, having heard yeah. it so much. But to put yourself in the shoes of a of an unbeliever who's never really right. contemplated the story and doesn't yep. know the details like we do, they yeah. for the person like that who then encounters, you know, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe for the classic example. Sure, he he now knows Aslan first, not Jesus yep. first. He knows the stone table first, not the cross mm -hmm. first, mm -hmm. and then eventually. Somehow, some way, someone communicates to him the, the story of Jesus on the cross, and he goes, oh, you mean kind of like Aslan on the stone table? And it's the back, Bingo. it's the reverse, yep. right? Exactly, uh, yep. so exactly. It, yeah, exactly. snuck past the watchful dragon, he, yep. he his armor was melted or or uh, pierced without him even yeah. knowing it. I love it. Yeah, oh. it's, it's brilliant, and this happened to Lewis himself. This was his own experience in conversion, was that uh, in many ways his imagination was, uh, you know, was – Attacked in a good way by by the Lord through different uh, works. George MacDonald's uh, book right. on fantasies that he wrote, and uh, he said that th those kinds of books baptized his imagination. And uh, you know, obviously that wasn't conversion, but it it did. It got to the point where when he heard the gospel later on, he said, "Ah, oh, it's like uh -huh. the true story. It's like this story, but it actually happened. It's like this, it's like <laughs> this fairy right. tale, but it's That's real." Right. Well, let's leave it right there, brother. We talked about organ of meaning, the, the imagination, organ of truth, reason, and God's gift, the artist inside your mind. We're going to have to take a break. You've heard uh, Reverend Sam Schulteis. When we get back from the break, you'll talk to uh, Reverend Jared DeBlick. You're listening to Cross Defense. we got to get out of here. Concord Matters is the program where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, Christ-confessing Concordians read through and discuss the Book of Concord, which is our Lutheran confession of faith drawn from Holy Scripture, so that you too may be of one mind and confess with Christ. Be sure to listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central on KFUO Radio or anytime on KFUO.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Until we convene for Concord again, keep confessing, church. All right, we are back for our third and final segment of today's Cross Defense. Thanks for hanging out with us. Uh, we really appreciate that you're here for this conversation. In this final segment, we have uh, a, a fellow classmate of mine, a friend, a pastor who's serving nearby Fort Wayne, actually. This is the Reverend Jared DeBlick, and he is the associate pastor at University Lutheran Church 
at Purdue University. Today, he's going to talk to us about 1 Peter 5, 6 to 11. How are you, Jared? And let's get into this. Hey, hey, Tag. Good to see you. It's good to have you on. Good to hear you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you actually, for the, for the listener's sake, he can see me. We are Skyping so we can have that live interaction. Um, but yeah, for the listeners, you guys don't get to see us. Not yet. Not yet. We're going to be bringing that video component back. And so stay tuned for that. But so, yeah, Jared, let's, t- let's dive into First uh, Peter 5, 6 to 11, and uh, with a focus on how this comforts the soul. Absolutely. Yeah, this is a, a wonderful text. Uh, I'll read it for you here, if that would be all right with yes, you. Yes, please do. Please do. All right. First Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I love it when a text ends with amen. <laughs> Isn't it great? Yeah, it's awesome. We okay, just had so, one with, uh, with the All Saints Day. That's right. That's right. And yeah. uh, it's, it's, yeah. it's interesting, though, when, when it's in the service, when it ends with amen, you know, we want to we wanna join in. And it's, yet yeah, no, no, he's reading that part still. So wait, wait. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so cool. Walk us through this. How does this comfort the Christian soul? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, um, we're recording this. Uh, we're, we're talking about this text um, around the uh, post-election time here. That's right. And, um, and uh, it's, uh, it's a little crazy out there. <laughs> and uh, Understatement of uh, the year. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to downplay it a little bit, I suppose. But uh, I think uh, things like national elections tend to heighten people's anxieties and worries, or at least they they um, they bring out of people what might already be existing within them a sense of uh, uh, this undercurrent of of fear of the unknown, uh, which I think is prevalent in most people. Uh, they want to be assured of their futures. And one of the things that you get right out of the bat here with this text is a very um, intrusive statement here, humble yourselves. And, uh, and, uh, but then it, it shows you by, by which, uh, uh, by, by who or whom uh, are you to be humbled under? And it's under the mighty hand of God. And what's, comforting, I believe, for the soul here is that the mighty hand of God is both the, the hand that, that um, uh, defends us as well as brings us uh, into Christ. It, it, it is, um, you know, is that kind of that two-edged sword type of uh, illustration there. And, uh, yeah. you know, th- there's, a, there's, a tr- there's a tipping point with, with a statement like this. I think I first want to state that this text is is uh, directed towards pastors in particular mm. at the end of 
of First Peter. Good point. Uh, and uh, but also by extension, it is applicable to the church. Obviously, anything that is applicable to the pastor in many ways is applicable to his congregation. Um, he's there to uphold the truth, the truth of God, God's word. Amen. But uh, anyhow, one of the things that uh, that comes out of this text is uh, is that uh, when you see something about humbling oneself, it, two, you know, a couple things can happen here. Um, well, first, uh, the first thing to look to here is to to ask yourself: uh, Is there some comparisons going on here? You you see one right away, humble and exaltation. You know, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Mm. It's not supposed to be the other way around, right? Right, Where right, right. Exalt oneself in order to um, show everybody how humble we are. That's the way of the Pharisees. That's right. the way of the unbeliever. That's the theology of the glo- of glory. We look to Jesus, whose uh, mighty hand is the one that. Uh, defends us, and the best defense that we have, the best care of soul, is the hand of Almighty God that is nailed to the cross. So the opposite of this uh, sentence, this opening sentence, would be, if you're exalting yourself, the mighty hand of God will humble you, right? But if since it starts off with humble yourselves, it's the the mighty hand of God exalts you. That's right, right, yeah. Okay, okay. It's kind of that language of, it's kind of that language of uh, oh, I'm trying to think of where it is, um, where um, we're told from from the scripture, don't sit in the seat of honor. Right. right. Wait. To be, wait to be moved up. Wait to be ex- exalted. You know, here's that that imagery of uh, of knowing your place before before God. I am a poor, miserable sinner. Yeah. Uh, but He will exalt you, um, and uh, the text kind of uh, uh, hashes out further what. What does that look like yeah. uh, in, in Christ? So we have here, yeah, as we move into verse 7, uh, you, you started us off like, couching this conversation in, in our current cultural you know, situation with the election and things going on in our nation. Uh, casting all your anxieties on him. Tell us, tell us about that. Talk with us about that. Give us that comfort. Yeah, yeah so... so uh... <laughs> This text is is just chock full. When you when you ask me to kind of think of a text, this is one that really came to the forefront for me. We're going through right now at our church uh, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, and uh, we're in Matthew chapter six. And in Matthew chapter six, you have a couple of these uh, these uh, statements about one's anxieties. And Matthew chapter six is a really interesting place in the gospel because it's it's in the it's at the climax of the first discourse, the first teaching portion to the disciples, to the future pastors, um, and and so it's at this climatic moment where where Jesus lays out uh, his purpose of 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 uh, why he's come, and that is to bring the forgiveness of sins, and he he talks uh, at length about what that in fact means. But at the culmination of chapter six, you have this word about anxiety mm. and anxiety and the forgiveness of sins. They go hand in hand. You know, Jesus is the one who, who comforts us and brings us salvation and really lays to rest any type of worry we may have for the greatest uh, uh, 
concern of life, which is our sin. And uh, hear these words from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 and 34, which are a good partner to First Peter here. Therefore, I tell you, says Jesus, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and, and the body more than clothing? And, and, it, and he ends this way. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Well, Ty, let me tell you this. I, I, I wish I would have read this last night as I stayed up into the wee morning hours <laughs> of uh, watching to see what would be the outcome of the election, which we do not currently know at this time. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe I could have uh, uh, taken uh, God's word to heart a little bit here, <laughs> not being anxious for tomorrow. Go to bed. <laughs> little, say your prayers. little comfort to, for the pastor. To, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And uh, as it is for the pastor, it should be for the church, too. Amen. You know, we worry so much about the future. We worry so much about what our hands are going to be uh, doing. I think we are terribly uh, busybodies. Um, and, uh, and I think that this also is, is a great affront to the faith that has been delivered to us by Jesus. You know, we are to look at the, the text of God as it speaks to our own anxieties in life, and see exactly what is at the heart of all these anxieties. It is, and it can be a great unbelief and a trying to be this autonomous, self-governing, don't need God type of life. Even if we proclaim to be Christians, uh, we are, you know, we are still sinners, and we we have problems with a. Uh, with someone else taking care of us. But in verse 7 of 1 Peter 5, you know, it's very clear about how we should uh, see a corrective in the text about this, about the way that we like to try to run our own lives. We are completely and utterly dependent upon Jesus. Cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're looking for a text in Scripture that just you know everybody's like, what is that absolutely? Where's that text? Where does it say those words? You know, <laughs> whatever it may be. Uh, here we have a very definitive word from our, uh, from from God about how He views you. You have anxieties. You have worries. You fear the unknown. Okay. Guess who cares for you? Ah, yeah, that's comfort right there, brother. Right there, it is. Absolutely. Yeah, to know to know that the Almighty God, God cares for me, little me, troubled me, uh, just burdened me, and all everyone else too, but me. Right, that He's caring mm -hmm. for you. It says, right, you, me, this guy, um, and and to the pastor. Ooh. Let's uh, just kind of pause on that for a second. Not not <laughs> disregarding the the laity and you know the rest of the church, but just for a second, with all the things uh, that the pastors have gone through this year, trying to continue to get God's word to their people, to continue to get the the sacrament to their people, and all the roadblocks that 2020 has thrown in the way of that, you know, and, and the anxieties that you and I know are, you know, stir up in our heart over you know, faithfully fulfilling our call and being these men that God sends to do a particular task and 2020 hasn't allowed us to do that very easily. Cast all that on him. 
pastor. Cast all that on him. He cares for you. And then, like you said so beautifully, if this is true for the pastor, it is true for the congregation. All the anxieties you have, Christian, out there in radio land, all the anxieties that are burdening you in this 2020 year, being as tumultuous as it's been, cast all that on him because, as Pastor DeBlick said, the scripture clearly states, God cares for you. Ah, take us deeper, brother. Get us uh, further into this. Absolutely, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm waiting for you to get to uh, sort of, especially a, a particular word in verse 9, but I'll let you get us there. If not, then I'll ask you about it. But Okay, well, let's... <laughs> let's uh, Let's look at verse eight uh, uh, real quickly sure, here. Sure, sure. Be be sober minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The imagery here, oh, yeah. is just fantastic. Oh yeah. And one uh, one of the the texts that comes to mind when I when I read this is from Genesis four, and uh, the rebuke of the Lord to Cain. The Lord said to Cain. Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? Obviously, if you've read this before, you know that Cain did not bring an a sufficient offering to the Lord because he thought he was good enough in and of himself, and he didn't really need to do those things. You know, he's the firstborn; he doesn't need to do any of these. Uh, he doesn't need to show any honor or regard for the Lord, and he's getting rebuked for that. And uh, he's uh, the Lord continues: If you do well. Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the at the door, and its mm. desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. Isn't that interesting? Mm. And uh, uh, its its desire that is sin that's crouching at the door is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Well, what does Cain do? But he he takes a uh, his own fate into his own hands, and he rises up and he kills his brother Abel. Like this is the exact opposite of everything we're talking about <laughs> about uh, letting uh, giving things to the mighty hand of God. And uh, so, when we're looking at this, verse eight is talking about okay, how are we sober, mindful, uh, minded? How how are we watchful? How do we uh, uh, how do we how would we uh, remain aware of of the the devil who is who is constantly out on 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 the prowl? Well, verse nine has that answer. It shows us that uh, we resist the we we resist uh, uh, Satan uh, firm in our faith, firm in what Jesus has given to us, uh, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood. Throughout the world, you know, verse nine talks about the antidote to the devil, and it's Jesus. Now, just a, a quick word here about a couple things that uh, uh, can be uh, brought out by by suffering. Suffering can elicit a couple responses. It can either bring one to exalt themselves, uh, to self-justify themselves, to seek out the idolistic praises of the world, or it can have them. Uh, go and repent and be in prayer, uh, seek their de know their dependence upon Jesus and that he will be merciful to them, that his grace is sufficient for them, and uh, that they are actually, in fact, justified in Jesus. There is a couple, you know, 
responses to anxiety. And, and one is the way of the world where we take care of ourselves and the other seeks a complete dependence upon, upon Jesus. You know, that word in, in, verse, in verse 9 that talks about being firm in your faith, well, that implies how we may resist the devil. And one of the places that we see this most clearly about uh, becoming firm in our faith uh, is if we look to something like, like uh, the creed, in, the third article to the creed that says, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. Ah, there we go. Yeah. That's how we know that we have uh, this firmness of faith. I think a lot of people are struggle like, well, I don't know if I, I, I have enough faith, or I don't know if, I, uh, if, I, if, I, if I'm believing rightly. Well, it's not by your own reason or strength. It's by the gospel that has been uh, brought to you and is, uh, has called you. Uh, that good news has called you by the many gifts of God. That's you know, the, the absolution that is uh, spoken to you, that holy baptism that washes away your sin, the Lord's Supper that brings you, as Jesus says, the forgiveness of sins. You know, that is the faith. The, those are faith-strengthening uh, instruments that the Lord uses, means of grace. And, uh, and then what's more is in the Lord's Prayer, talking about what, is the, what does the humble of heart do, but he is constantly depending on the Lord. And what do you do if you depend upon your Father? You pray, you, you talk to your Father. And in the Lord's Prayer, we have these words, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is God's will done? God's will is done when he breaks and hinders every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and our sinful nature, which, mind you, is constantly prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour, right? Yep. And uh, these things do not want us to hollow God's name or let his kingdom come, uh, but when He, the Lord will finally strengthen and keep us firm in his word and faith until we die. Resist him firm in your faith. How do we do that but through Jesus. Amen. Brother, we got to leave it there. We are out of time. That goes by so quick. Oh, yeah. uh, but you did get to what we were talking about with the, uh, what I wanted you to bring up, especially because it's been on my mind is this suffering, uh, not avoiding the idea that we are going to suffer, but we don't suffer alone, that we're experiencing the same thing that a whole brotherhood has, uh, has endured because of the, the prowling lion. Thank you, brother, for coming on. We'll have you on again to give us more comfort from God's word. Did a great job. I really appreciate it. And I hope uh, the listeners out there took away, I know they did, uh, took away something that would give them some comfort in the midst of this time of, of anxiety. God bless you. Thank you so Talk much. to you soon. God bless. Yep. For the listeners out there, thank you so much for tuning in. You've been listening to Cross Defense. I'm your host, the Reverend Tyrell Bramwell. Until next time, Christ be with you. Cross Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org.